The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. And sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. This is Arun Sudhaman and on the line is Paul Holmes. Paul, welcome to the show. Welcome back. Thank you. Nice to be back. It's been a while since we spoke on a podcast. Hong Kong, I think. Does that count? Yes, indeed. I think that was um, at the height of Bell Pottinger fever. What a, um, you know, what an amazing period that was for us all. It was, uh, it was much more fun to be a spectator than a participant, I'm sure. Yes, likewise, likely probably still is, I imagine, because it's a story that, that continues to give. I mean, uh, I think we're still waiting to hear what happens with the Middle East operation. There are apparently three bidders um, for the business. And we should hear soon who is going to end yep. up buying Bell Pottinger Middle East. Well, and, you know, there's still the issue, which I suspect we'll get to later, of whether um, this is a genuine wake-up call for the PR industry on ethics or whether it will be a quickly forgotten blip. Yes, um, I have my suspicions about that, but we'll talk about that later. What I wanted to talk to you about first was about Johnny Water, who uh, announced his retirement from IBM, uh, I think 10 days ago, after a a 34-year career at the company. Um, most recently as chief brand officer, but that was that was really only for a matter of months. He, he spent the bulk of his career um, in senior communications and marketing roles. Uh, and in many ways, he... Well, you can set me straight on all of this because I think you um, are, are far more familiar with his career than I am. But he seems to have, become, have emerged as a kind of a sort of modern prototype for the, uh, the chief communications officer and for the kind of integration between comms and marketing. Tell us why, why perhaps you think he was such a significant figure for the business. Um, I, think, I think there are two main things that um, people respected, admired about John um, in terms of his accomplishments or his role at IBM. Um, The first was that um, he was one of, I think, very few CCOs um, to find a role for himself that encompassed both corporate communications and marketing. Um, And, you know, the people people who've heard me speak over the years will be aware that my view is that marketing is a subset of public relations. Mm. Uh, that you know, PR is about managing the relationship with all your stakeholders. Marketing is about managing the relationship with one set of stakeholders, the consumer, um, and that therefore, in a sane and rational world, marketing would be seen as um, 
just one part of the public relations mix rather than the other way around. Um, IBM is, is perhaps the only major company where the, the roles really reflected that, where somebody who was essentially a PR guy managed the relationship with consumers um, at the highest level. And so I think that that was a big factor. And then the, the second thing was that, um, you know, his role, um, his role as a thought leader for the industry um, shouldn't be underestimated. I mean, I, IBM was living the idea of being the authentic corporation or the authentic enterprise um, before the Arthur W. Page Society um, came out with its authentic enterprise um, white paper, and John clearly was um, w was the thought leader in, um, in 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 sort of turning that into a set of cogent principles. Mm. I suppose the, the question that arises, as it often does, when a influential communications head leaves a company is that will will the strategy outlast the individual um, do you think that's the case at IBM or will we see what we've seen many times which is that a new communications head comes in and, and they almost start from scratch all over again yeah I mean I think I think institutionalizing our function continues to be a major problem or issue um, not you know not just at IBM but but generally, um, and um, you know it, it seems pretty clear already I think that um, Ray Day, um, who is succeeding John as um, chief communications officer, um, will have a much more traditional CCO role mm -hmm. than. The on the the one that John had created for himself, um, you know, like this is another sort of, as you say, um, fairly familiar complaint that, um, unlike the chief financial officer or the chief legal officer, um, the chief public relations officer doesn't get that giant expanded, respected role automatically. <clears throat> Excuse me. He or she has to earn it um, almost from scratch. And look, Ray is um, Ray is a, a, a veteran. He's he's very widely respected. Um, he's held senior communications roles at, at Ford um, at a time when you know Ford was trying to position itself as a technology company, um, mm -hmm. and, and quite successfully trying to position itself as a as a tech as a technology company um but i but i don't see any evidence that he'll wield the influence initially that john did mm. um when john iwata combined the roles i think we're going back it's more than a decade now i feel when he took on an yeah. oversight of marketing and communications and this was was rare then. It's 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 almost as rare now. Um, did you feel like it was going to herald more change than it than it eventually did? 
Yeah, there there were a couple of other um, there are a couple of other examples. So um, Tom Buckmaster at, at Honeywell um, was the the other the other guy who, within a couple of years, sort of had taken on the same role. And and I at the time thought that you know you and I have spoken on these podcasts before about the convergence of mm. um, of marketing and corporate communications. And, and I thought that what might happen was that in consumer-facing companies, the two functions would converge under somebody out with a marketing background. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in more business-to-business and, and corporate environments, you might see um, more CCOs taking on an expanded role. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's I think it's fair to say that that still remains um, extremely rare. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think we did uh, we have looked at this via our Influence One Hundred research, and you do see more of these people around, more people um, on the communication side who are leading combined functions. But it's interesting that um, it's still not. You know, you you certainly can't draw the conclusion that it's widespread. I think we counted um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten people uh, last year. That included John Iwata, who obviously doesn't anymore. That included Beth Comstock. That's another function that is no longer uh, an integrated one, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, because there's a CMO there and a CCO. Uh, so that number drops to eight, I believe, which is really not enough, you would think, in this kind of, supposedly, this this integrated era. Um, yeah, actually, actually, I mean, I, I, in some ways it's not enough. In some ways it's more than you'd expect. I mean, I, I think, for example, there's still a lot of, there's still a lot of organizations um where the two functions are separate, um, but <laughs> relatively equal, um, or at least in terms of reporting relationships, relatively equal, um, which is to say, you know, both of them are reporting into this, the, the C-suite in a, in a meaningful way. Um, they're not necessarily equal in terms of budget, which is one of the you know, sort of ongoing issues. Um, but, um, but, you know, if, if you assume that, that fewer than half of the companies that we look at have integrated the two functions and it could be as little as a third, then you're actually saying a third of those companies, um, give or take, or a quarter of those companies have integrated it under public relations, which again, given that we tend to, um, select our influence 100 from big brand name companies may may not be that far off but but um but my guess is that you know because we're self-selecting for influence we're also self-selecting for people who are capable of managing both functions whereas i suspect that that pretty soon as you as you sort of go down that that ladder um, you run out of people who are capable of doing the two jobs. And it's interesting because we, we mentioned Beth Comstock, and of course she also um, retiring from GE 
uh, often it's it's interesting to me. I've always thought when people uh, talk about um, communications executives who have ascended to the highest levels in an organization, the two people they often point to uh, for, for the past decade have been John Iwata and Beth Comstock. Um, she also uh, oversaw an integrated function, eventually moved into the role of vice chairman, um, where she kind of took on a role that oversaw innovation. Um, but with her departure and with John's departure and with the sort of uh, trends that you've just discussed that we're aware of, do you feel that the, the lack of people of comms people overseeing these kind of integrated functions is a failure of personnel or a failure of structure or not a failure at all? I do think, um, I do think there are questions about how many CCOs um, are, have, have the qualities necessary to take that kind of leadership role. Um, you know, I, I, f I feel like I feel like this podcast more than perhaps some others uh, finds me um, repeating myself um, more than more than I'd like to. But you know, again, one of the one of the things that I've spoken about in in our industry is the need for courage, and you know, I think the role that we're describing needs somebody who's pretty bold and pretty assertive and pretty willing to um, speak up and insert themselves into management discussions even when they're not asked to. Um, and I wonder whether there isn't, uh, uh, you know, uh, whether, whether too many PR people are still, um, you know, content with a, a more limited role. Um, or, or reluctant to rock the boat to the extent necessary to, to uh, A, get noticed, but B, at the same time, risk exposing yourself. So, yeah. mm. um, but, but I, also, I, I also wonder whether um, there shouldn't be, perhaps, and I haven't, I haven't thought this through, so bear with me, some... Um, some sort of training program or some sort of program that would prepare CCOs for an expanded role um, looking after marketing. And there are, there are clearly some things in terms of the, the marketing function that are more demanding than many CCOs are ready for, particularly in the areas of data and analytics. This is true. Do you feel... I mean, you, you mentioned that you, you kind of alluded to this idea that people didn't want to rock the boat. Why do you feel that's the case? Again, is, do you think, without getting too much into the psychology um, of, of individuals, do you feel that there is something in the, in the makeup of people in the communications industry? Or is it simply a function of the fact that they're their roles are just not taken as seriously as perhaps they could be. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to overestimate the former hmm. versus the latter, right? I mean, I think, you know, we've, we've had a lot of discussions both on the agency side of the business and on the client side of the business in, in recent um, 
recent years and months about swim lanes and and the pressure that there is to stay in them um and so even if you're even if you're eager to break out of your swim lane as many agencies are um you can find yourself restricted by expectations and comfort levels uh within client organizations and i'm sure that's equally true and possibly more true um if if you're the head of court comms or whatever the function is called these days mm. um but um i do think that i do think that there's an element of the the former and i and i i wonder whether for example the pr business attracts a lot of people who are um consensus builders who are um collaborators who are um you know not not necessarily in the self aggrandizement business um were sort of taught to be that from an early age in in this profession mm-hmm. and you know we work in the background we we don't want to become the story mm-hmm. and so i do think that there's this tendency to perhaps take a lower profile um within organizations than would be helpful and i you know i also think that once you get to be the cco historically that was the pinnacle historically there were very few pr people who transcended that role in any meaningful way and so you'd sort of got to where you were that you got to the top of the mountain um you know what 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 were you going to do next so and now i think there is perhaps an opportunity for a clear next but not everybody has prepared for it because you know a lot of these people came up at a time when the cco job was the pinnacle of their expectation mm. um anything you want to say on uh, on beth comstock's career while we're on this topic because it seems to me that um she had you know as much if not um if if not more impact than john iwata did yeah i think i mean look i think clearly um beth was one of the people who you know did transcend the the pr role at um, at, at ge i mean not not just in terms of marketing mm. um which is you know clearly the most um aligned role with what we're talking about and and therefore the most obvious opportunity um but beth was just a, an immensely um immensely talented immensely smart executive who seemed to rise to every challenge that was put in front of her um whether that was you know brand and marketing whether it was innovation whether it was just you know being one of the sort of wise heads running that business and i think um you know beth was a was a, a unique uh individual in in our industry mm-hmm. uh and um the the fact that they were they were role model both she and john were role models for others in our profession without um without ever or this may be a little unfair there may be there may be others out there who are sort of two or three years away from being the next john and the next beth and i hope there are 
but uh, but but as you say, it has not been that that phenomenon has not been widely duplicated. Mm. Yes, I think that's probably true. Um, so let's switch topics quickly here, um, because I wanted to also get into this. Uh, I suppose you could describe as the ethical fallout from um, the Bell Pottinger affair, uh, which rumbles on. Um, so you were in Helsinki uh, when the Helsinki Declaration was made, um, which what? was was pretty historic, I feel. Um, so this was the, the declaration made at the Eco Summit in Helsinki, and it was a 10-point... A ten-point ethical code, I guess, would be the way to describe it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and presumably signed up to by the various associations which make up ECO. Uh, and, of course, those associations are PR agency, PR consultancy, membership bodies. Um, this isn't... I, I, I'm going to say this, but I'm hoping you will <laughs> verify... This surely isn't the first time that we've seen these these kinds of ethical codes. Well, no. I mean, I think um, I think every internet, every major trade association has an ethical code. Um, you know, most of the professional organisations, possibly even more so, um, have have their own ethical codes. Mm. Um, I think. Um, they tend. I, I I think the question isn't actually you know how many ethical codes you have. It's the ferocity or otherwise with which they're enforced, mm. and enforcement has been um, the the big issue right. uh, in in our industry, and 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 for for some justifiable reason, right? I mean, it is it is it can be a challenge. Um, to define what we do sharply enough to um, to distinguish between bad practice and downright unethical practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And of course, I mean, that was one of the things that made the, the PRCA uh, action over Bell Pottinger so notable, I think, was just the fact that an agency was being expelled um, because... You know, aside from from, I think a small UK agency was was previously expelled by the PRCA before. I don't I don't recall this happening uh, anywhere else. Um, certainly not with an agency of similar stature and size. No, it it, it was um, again. I I've seen the PRSA in the US. Um, uh, uh, expel or censor um, individuals, mm -hmm. um, but but in many cases that has been for um, illegal activity only tangentially or unrelated to the practice of public relations. For example, I remember um, a, a fairly prominent PR executive in Detroit uh, being being expelled. I think from the PRSA. Um, for insider trading, um, but you know that's not that's not a question of professional practice. That's mm -hmm. in terms of what he was, you know, 
how he was conducting himself as a PR man. Mm. Um, so, um, yeah, it, it, it was, it was, um, even though I'd, even though I'd sort of seen the mounting evidence against Bell Pottinger, even though it seemed to me to be a clear cut case of, um, of going beyond what ought to be ethically acceptable anywhere. Um, I was still mildly shocked that a trade association took such a um, principled stand. And and then, of course, we get to the Helsinki Declaration, PRCA is part of ECO. Uh, how how worthwhile or otherwise do you believe this, this kind of, of declaration is? Um, again, I think it will. I think it'll come down to um, to enforcement, mm. um, and so you know, I, I look at um, this is this has been a, a a pet peeve, I guess, of mine for for a long time, and I, I I feel like I'm sort of boring on the subject, but you know, item, item number six, um, for example, is says that that. PR agencies should be forthcoming about sponsors of causes and interests and never engage in misleading practices such as astroturfing. Well, okay. So first of all, you could make the case that astroturf, one, one person's astroturfing is another person's grassroots, right? Uh, astroturfing is what your opponent does and grassroots is what you do. But there is clearly... Um, Still, in 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 public affairs, in particular, in Washington and and, and elsewhere, um, this tendency to hide corporate sponsored associations behind some sort of grassroots sounding name like Citizens for mm-hmm. yeah. Fuel, you know, whatever different higher different fuel economy standards or whatever, and we all know that the citizens working families for Walmart. Think. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And and sure. You know. I mean. In, to to a certain extent. Yes. The CEOs of major corporations are citizens, and so you're not actually lying. Um, <laughs> but but you know we all know it's dishonest, right? And this goes on all the time. Now, uh, it, is anybody going to enforce that standard? Uh. And then, of course, the, the the other thing about the Helsinki Declaration. I don't want to be critical because I I do think it's important that we try to codify this stuff. Mm-hmm. Is okay. So you can you can clearly expel somebody if they breach number one, which is to basically work in accordance with applicable laws. Mm-hmm. If somebody breaks the law, you can throw them out. Um, but could you, you know, number seven says to be aware of the power of social media and use it responsibly. Mm. Are you going to expel somebody because they weren't aware of the power of social media? Um, I, I mean that, you know, we we do need to, we do need to, I think, tighten up and get specific and make this stuff um, actionable. And I and I don't. That's where I think there's a gap between um, our hopes and aspirations and where the rubber meets the road. So one person who perhaps doesn't think the Helsinki Declaration is enough, is Richard Edelman, who I think this was just a week or maybe two weeks after 
the Helsinki Declaration made a speech at the National Press Club in which he offered his own take on the need for higher ethical standards um, and on how companies can, can hope to retain the public's trust. And he, he called for something called a PR compact to ensure accountability. He said that companies need to invest in collaborative journalism to educate the public and, and engage in real dialogue. Um, there, were, there were a few other recommendations he made. Um, wh where do we start here? Where do we start here? Um, <laughs> look, I, I think, look, I've, I've made so many complaints over the year about, over the years about sort of lack of leadership Mm. Um, from from sort of senior people in our industry on big issues facing our industry um, that I think we should be applauding Richard for wading into this issue and um, taking a taking a stand and and providing leadership. Yeah, because um, if we're being honest, I suspect most PR agency heads are disinclined from sticking their heads above the parapet on this one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I think almost anybody who does so is um, is going to sort of attract the uh, there but for the grace of God go you mm -hmm. um, kind of attitude, right? Because mm -hmm. I think nearly every major PR firm, and Edelman is certainly no exception, um, have... Um, ethical issues in their past have been, um, you know, accused of crossing the line on, on numerous occasions. And, um, and so, you know, that, that's the first thing is that, going back to an earlier point, it takes a certain amount of courage to stand up when you know that it's likely to make you a target. Mm -hmm. Um, and look, I, I, I like, I like some of, um, I like some of the principles that Richard outlined. Mm. Um, I think, you know, his, his, his sort of first idea of, of checking the facts and not accepting what a client tells you um, is, is, is absolutely vital. I mean, how many times have we seen PR agencies um, un, unwittingly, one hopes, put out inaccurate, inaccurate statements on behalf of clients because the client had lied to the agency? And so, you know, demanding an extra level of verification before putting your own reputation on the line seems to me to be, you know, one of the very fundamental things that that a responsible PR agency should do. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, 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 I do think that for the most part, the, the things that he's thinking about are things that the entire industry could rally about around. Again, I, you know, the... The PR Council, for example, has a lot of, because the PR Council is the U.S. analog to the PRCA. Uh, um, the PR Council has um, has as much ability to um, uh, expel members as the PRCA does, and could could presumably enforce something like this. It's a little more difficult for the paid society, I think, because it's hard to know 
it's hard to it's hard sometimes to identify the individuals involved when a company lies or a company misleads or a company does something unethical it's hard to say well the corporate the senior corporate communications guy who in most cases would be the page member is the individual who should bear the brunt of that sometimes companies do some sometimes companies make stupid public relations blunders without ever involving anybody from the PR department. And I think that's a little more challenging. But mm -hmm. but I don't want to nitpick the idea to death. I think there is a, I think there's a valuable discussion to be had. Sure. I mean, Richard did call on the Arthur Page Society and the PR Council to serve as the industry watchdog in the US. I suspect one of those organizations is far more amenable to that idea than the other. Um, of the, of the four tenets he advances, the first you've mentioned, insist on accuracy. The second, demand transparency, which I find is a great idea in theory, but I'm just never really sure how it will work in practice. Um, well, again, I think, I mean, I think what Richard is talking about there is the thing that we talked about earlier, item six on the, the Helsinki de mm -hmm. Declaration, which is, you know, don't, don't hide behind advocacy groups or coalitions um you'll know, be be utterly transparent and i look i i also think there's a pragmatic reason for that which is if people find out at some later point that a group that they thought was sort of made up a, a spontaneous uprising of ordinary citizens is in fact a corporate shell mm. I, I just think you know in terms of public relations i can't think of anything more likely to erode your relationship with the public. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a clear, I suppose, example and reason. Where it gets, I think, a little tricky is when you have this sort of idea that, okay, we're in this era where of so-called radical transparency, companies should be transparent about everything. Um, I get a lot of pushback against that when I talk to people both on the agency and client side, who just say that, that no, companies will and should have some secrets. Well, I, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think this depends on what you're talking about, right? Mm. So I don't think anybody is saying that transparency should go so far as, you know, Coca-Cola posting its secret formula online for everybody to duplicate. Um, mm. But... Um, but certainly in terms of how you wield influence in the world, uh -huh. um, then yeah, I, I think transparency is, I, I, I don't, I, I do not see the, um, well-intentioned and intellectually honest argument against greater transparency in communications sure. and influence, um, and 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 by the way, I mean you know, without without getting into a sort of new wormhole or or opening up a can of worms or whatever the worm related analogy for this is, um, you know, this this should this should extend to clients being honest about hiring PR firms. I mean, how many times have you and I been told the client doesn't want us to announce that we're working for them? Yeah. 
Um, now, is that covered by transparency? I would say it is. I, oh, I yeah. would say yeah. if if I would say that if a PR agency is doing work for a client, that ought to be in the public domain. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And, and I've I've made that case before. Um, but you know that the, the again and. It, the reason provided is simply often, uh, most often, I would say the reason provided is that a company feels if it if it um, confirms it's working with a public relations agency, it looks like it has a public relations issue. Well, I mean, again, I don't want to I don't want to necessarily turn this into a self-serving. You should all tell the Holmes report everything. Damn you. Um, conversation, but uh, but you know the thing that makes the thing that makes hiring a public relations agency look shameful is that people act as if they're ashamed of doing it, or, or that you know that that they worry it says something negative about them. I mean, you don't you don't have that issue. You know, nobody says, "Oh, they hired a they had an advertising agency. They must have a marketing problem." Hmm. Um. I, yeah, you know, I just, I don't, I, I, actually think that if we were a little more transparent, we'd maybe normalize it to the extent that that issue went away. But yeah, we're a long I, I, way. We're a long way from this, that. Is, this is not the biggest issue that we're <laughs> facing in the industry. <laughs> no, but it's a very annoying one um, for us, anyway. Yes. Uh, engage his third tenet quickly. I'll just go through the other two. Engage in the free and open exchange of ideas. I, I think this is um, very sensible tell both sides of the story and allow for dissenting views. I mean, that's something that I think any public relations practitioner uh, worth its salt is probably, you know, aware of the, the benefits of this kind of an approach. Yeah, um, I, I, but again, that, that falls into the realm for me of, you know, that's a nice idea, but but it's not, an, it's not, it, to, I, I, I keep coming back to this. If it's not something enforceable, mm. then then, you know, it, it, it belongs somewhere other than a code of ethics. Right. Right. I mean, it, it's, it's a, it's a principle. It's, it's, it can be one of your values. It can be part of your mission, but you're not going to expel somebody because they failed to engage in the free and open exchange of ideas. No. I, I, I just think we need to separate those two things of these are things for which PR people should be censured or expelled or um, somehow punished. And these are things that, you know, are good things to aspire to and nice things to be, right? And, and I, I think every ethics code, I, I, I've been looking at them as we were thinking about this, wow. almost every ethics code con conflates the two in a way that I, I just think maybe confuses the issue. Uh -huh. Well, I look forward to your um, your review of, of the world's ethics PR ethics codes. <laughs> I was, you know, I knew as soon as I said that that <laughs> something bad was going to happen. You admitted to doing some research. <laughs> yeah, the next step is is not hard to fathom. Um, okay, excellent. And then the fourth, Richard's fourth tenet again. I think. Um, Nothing massively surprising. Require everyone to take universal online ethics training. Um, I mean, here we get into the question of moral relativism, if we really want to go there. Uh, not something I actually subscribe to. 
but you do hear the argument made that you know what is ethical in one culture and society is not in another um, and I suspect that is an argument people will make uh, about this kind of a tenet do you not think? Um, yes but not to the extent that they might have 10 or 20 years ago um, right. you know I mean I remember I remember being being told um, 20 or 25 years ago, uh, I, I mean, and reading quotes from American CEOs, for example, who, who were quite clear in saying, look, we have to pay bribes in developing countries because it's expected there. There are no laws against it. Our competitors are all doing it. If we don't do it, we'll lose out. And, you know, that kind of cultural relativism mm. um, was pretty widespread 25 years ago. I don't think you hear that. I mean, I, I, I'm, not saying that, I'm not saying that there aren't American CEOs out there who think that. Mm. Uh, but you don't hear that argued quite as much. And, and I, think, I think, you know, again, I'll, I'll come down to the PR case for this, which is... I think today, if if you turn around and said, well, you know, sure, we would never have displaced an entire town in America in order to sink our mine, but we were quite comfortable having the Nigerian government send in troops to forcibly remove people from their land so we could do it in Nigeria. Mm. I, I just think that, I, mean, I just think anybody who made that kind of argument today would face such a backlash. Yeah. Um, I, I almost can't imagine it happening. So yeah, there are going to be there are going to be sort of cultural nuances, and that's that's one thing. But I think saying we can act this way because the laws in the developing market or um, the standards in a developing market are different. I, I think that's a very difficult argument to make. Well, I hope you're right. Um... Anyway, we shall see what happens. I suspect this isn't the last we've heard on the topic of ethics. Um, anyway, I'll let you go because um, I imagine you have things to do. So thank you very much for your time. Um, and it's Always been pleasure. great to have you back on the Echo Chamber. Uh, we'll be back with another show uh, next week, I imagine. Anyway, you can, um, as always, find us on iTunes where you can rate and review us. Um, get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. Send us questions. We're always happy um, to hear from you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people.